Uh, we, this year in, at GCF, have been going through the book of Mark. Uh, Mark is a gospel. Um, and what that means is, is Mark is giving us a story of this guy named Jesus and who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and why that's important for us. Um, and some of you here, this, you might be newish here. Maybe it is potentially your first time here. Um, and, and that's good. We're glad you're here. But, but what, if, what if I were to say to you that I am the reason why all of these people are here? That all these people think that there is something fantastic or stupendous about me, and that I am the reason why these people gather week in and week out um, to come here. And you, you're probably laughing in your head, or you're thinking, well, I'll be the judge of that when the sermon is done. Um, see if you're the reason why uh, people are here. But, but what if, so let's say they don't do it in the winter semester because they already did it and they don't like giving us free things. But when we get here in the, in, in the fall, the university puts on the big welcome feast on the Oval, right? And thousands of students are out there and they give you free hot dogs, right? Like we're like elevated preschoolers. And so there's all these kids and they're hungry and it's lunchtime. But let's say that, that we're all out there and in some administrative faux pas, they brought five hot dog buns and like three hot dogs. And everyone is distraught. But you see me, you're like, hey, there's that GCF guy. And I go out there, I'm like, I got this, Royce. Um, that's our president, because um, his office is there. And so I'm on the Oval, so I'm talking to him in his office, announcing my presence. Um, and so anyway, I take these hot dog buns and these hot dogs, and I start cutting them up and dividing them. And I go to each student in the thousands, and I give them some. And, and it just seems like these hot dog buns and these hot dogs have no end. And by the end, I fed all of these students, so much so that we have more hot dogs than what we began with, and everybody is full, satisfied, gorged. You might be like, okay, this guy's got something going on, okay? But, you know, maybe it's a fluke. Maybe they were really potent hot dog buns. But then let's say the next day comes, and we're all in the Adams Center uh, for the Grizz game because we love supporting the Grizzlies in basketball. That's why we're here tonight when they're playing Eastern Washington 500 yards from here. Um, and, uh, and, and we're there, and after the game, everybody's kind of hungry. It's late. And now we're in Dahlberg, so there's, there's, there's a few thousand people in there. And uh, I'm like, well, what do we got to eat, guys? And Logan comes up, um, and he's cutting calories because he's on the track team. He's like, I got, I got seven soft pretzels for people and, and a couple things of nacho cheese. I'm like, you know what? I got this. And so I take these, these pretzels and this nacho cheese, and I split them up. And again, everybody in Dahlberg Arena, I give food to their filling, and we have more left over than when we started. Maybe then you would think I'm something special. And my question to you is if at this point, seeing these two things, if I'm not something special to you, what would it take to convince you that I'm something special? And you see, most of you have picked up what's going on here. If you've been to church or vacation Bible school, these two stories I just said are stories that Jesus lived in the book of Mark. In Mark 6, we see Jesus going and feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and three fish. And that's 5,000, that's just, just the men. And so people estimate there's upwards of 10,000 people when you add in women and children. And so in Mark 6, we see that. And now in Mark 8, as we're in Mark 8, just a few days later, there's 4,000 people gathered. And Jesus has seven loaves this time and a few fish. 
And he does the same thing, and he feeds them, and they are satisfied. If, if you saw Jesus do that, or in this case, if you heard Jesus do that, would you believe he's something special? If you saw that, if you were in this crowd, if you lived 2,000 years ago and you witnessed this, would you think he's something special? And for those of you in here who are not Christians, who don't believe in Jesus, who are just here, maybe you're searching, maybe you don't know why you're here, I have one real question for you. What would it take? What would it take for you to believe that Jesus is God? What would it take for you to believe that Jesus is your Savior? For those of you in here who are Christians, a similar question, what would it take for, for you to see the sign of God's faithfulness? What to you is the sign of God's faithfulness to you? How do you know what you believe is true? How do you know this faithfulness, this loving God, is actually who he says he is? And Jesus is going to answer these questions for us tonight um, in Mark 8. And we're going to see two things tonight. And I, I want you to bear these in mind, and we're going to come back to them at the end. We're going to see that Jesus is merciful to the slow and a sign to the lost. Jesus is merciful to the slow and a sign to the lost. So let's pray and then we'll dive in. Lord, we thank you um, for this campus. We thank you for these students who are here. We thank you for uh, your gospel and the timeliness of it, the truthfulness of it. And Lord, I pray um, you promise that your word is effective, that your word um, is not only truthful, but it labors on us. It works in us, and we ask that you do that tonight through your Holy Spirit, that you give us hearts to listen. Um, that you convict us and lead us to worship and repentance. We love you, Lord. We give you this time. We pray this in your name. Amen. So here's what we're going to do with this text here. Uh, we're in Mark 8. If you have your Bibles, you can open it up. If not, it'll be up on the screens. Um, and we're going to fly through this text. We're actually going to spend a small amount of time looking at the text and more time at the end discussing the text because like I'm a guy who's really snobby with my movies, and I don't like movies that have to constantly remind you of what the plot is, like you just forgot while you're watching this movie. I like movies that take different stories and different themes and different characters and weave them together, and it's only at the end of that movie do you see how everything fits together. Many of you hate the movie I just described, but just still listen anyway. Um, because that's what we're going to see here today. We need to see the whole picture of what's happening in Mark chapter 8 to understand what is actually going on. But what we're going to see as we're looking at is we're going to see three portraits, or three scenes, if you will. The first scene um, is the portrait of doubt. The portrait of doubt. We see this in Mark 8, starting in verse 11 through 13. The Pharisees, who are people who oppose Jesus, they came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he, that's Jesus, sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So here we see, uh, those of you who have your Bible open, you see uh, immediately preceding this, we have Jesus feeding the 4,000. That event I just summarized for you. So Jesus feeds 4,000 people, with seven loaves and a few fish, okay? And, and so he crosses, like, he does this huge miracle. He crosses the lake, and these guys come up, and they're like, hey, give us a sign. Do something. And I'm just like, I would just be so mad. Like, I'd, I'd be like, like King Leonidas after conquering something. Like, are you not entertained? Like, he, I just fed 4,000 people with Wonder Bread. And he gets to the other side, and people are like, what do you got? Do something, Jesus. 
do something special, make something wonderful happen. But here's the thing about the Pharisees. Here we have the Pharisees asking, and actually the word you, you see in the Bible is arguing with Jesus, saying, give us a sign. The Pharisees hate Jesus. In fact, we saw earlier in the book of Mark that them and the followers of Herod, who's kind of the ruler at the time, they're, they're conniving with one another to kill Jesus. So the Pharisees don't really want a sign. The Pharisees aren't interested in Jesus' miracles. They wanted something so obvious that it had to be without a shadow of a doubt that this Jesus is God, that this Jesus is the Messiah that everyone says he is, that he is the Savior. And they doubted Jesus was who he said he was. And so they said, give us a sign from heaven. Do something so clear that we have to believe in you. And, and Jesus says to them, he says, why do you demand a sign? In fact, in Matthew, giving the same account, Jesus says, you're able to look at the sky by night and tell if a sailor is safe to sail in the morning, right? Have you guys heard the old adage, red skies at night, sailors delight. Clear skies at night, sailors delight. Red skies in the morning, sailors take warning. These people know how to look at the sky at night and discern if it's safe to sail in the morning. But he's like, you guys can't see this sign. You guys are asking for a sign and you're not going to get one. Even though you think you're so smart, you're not going to get a sign. But part of what Jesus is saying is completely ironic, isn't it? Because here we have people asking for a sign, but Jesus has already healed the sick. He's already made lame men walk. He's cast out demons. He's brought a dead girl back to life. If those are normal signs that we should just take for granted, then I live in a very abnormal world. Jesus has done signs. Jesus has done wonders, things which we would pay money to see. And Jesus has done them openly and publicly, and thousands upon thousands of people have heard and bore witness to what's going on here. You want a sign? We have books of them. Jesus is acting. Jesus is doing amazing things. But it wasn't sufficient. These Pharisees said they needed something more. They needed something more clear to believe that Jesus was who he says he was. And this makes sense, right? As I said, the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. These are the outsiders. These are people who don't like Jesus. They don't want Jesus to be true. They don't want to follow Jesus. They'd rather see him die, and one day we'll eventually murder him. So this makes sense that they don't believe. But what about those who were Jesus' followers? How did they view Jesus at this time? And immediately after the story of the Pharisees doubting Jesus, we pick up this story of Jesus' immediate circle of his followers. Verse 14. So they got in the boat to go to the other side. Now they, that's Jesus and his disciples, had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the, five lo the loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did we take up? They said to him, 12. And when the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up then? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now this is one of my favorite passages of scripture because you can't do anything but read it and laugh. Because the disciples are really just clueless in this instance as to what's going on here. Because, mind you, if you're looking at your Bible, you have to turn 
no pages to see the feeding of the 4,000. Okay? You turn one page and you see 10,000 people and Jesus feeds them with five loaves and three fish. So much so that they picked up 12 baskets extra. Okay? Fast forward two days, probably a few hours before this instance we're reading. There's 4,000 people, less people, seven loaves, more loaves, and Jesus feeds them to full. So two stories of miraculous feedings where there's leftovers and people are so full, it's like the Super Bowl all over again. And, and these dudes, 12 guys, get on a boat with one loaf of bread and they're like, oh, what are we going to eat? Also, quick observation, this is proof positive that none of the disciples went to college. Because if you put 12 college guys in a boat and gave them a loaf of bread, they're like, we're set. We got this. We have a whole loaf of bread to eat. But these disciples get in this boat with Jesus, who's just by his hands fed thousands. And they're sitting in this boat, and they start discussing, like, hey, <clears throat> Peter, did you notice uh, we got one loaf? And mind you, they're just going across the lake. Okay? It's not like they're setting off on this extended journey for weeks. It's like, guys, we're going to have to go, like, <clears throat> three hours without food. We just have this bread to eat, this loaf of bread. And, and I love what Jesus says because he's, he gives this really cryptic thing. He says, hey guys, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the disciples responded the same way most of you just responded. But what about the bread? We still don't have any bread. And so like Jesus warns them and it's just like... Straight over their heads. And they go back to talking about this bread, and it grieved Jesus. We could just feel with Jesus this, this, this dumbfoundness that, he, that he's perceiving from the disciples here. And he says, do you not understand? Seven questions Jesus asks them about understanding. Knowing full well, the answer is no. Do you not understand? Do you not see? Do you not perceive? Are you not understanding in this? And the Pharisees doubted, so here's the connection between the leaven of the Pharisees and what we just read. The Pharisees doubted that Jesus was who he says he was. And sitting in the boat with the man who claims to be the bread of life, the man who had fed thousands with less, they doubted that Jesus would take care of them. And Jesus says, you don't understand. It's not about the loaves. There's nothing magical about the bread that makes the bread expand to feed 1,000 people. The power, the sufficiency, the care, that came from me. You're in a boat with me. You're in a boat with Jesus. Don't worry about the loaf. Trust that I am something special. Trust that I am who I say I am. I'm the one who multiplies the bread. And so even inside of Jesus' circle, there's this confusion, there's this lack of clarity, there's this doubt that even though they know Jesus and they love Jesus and they're buddies with Jesus, they're on a boat with Jesus, they don't get it. They missed it. And these two stories capture how oblivious we are as humans, both of those who are with Christ and those who are without Christ, how oblivious we are to Christ, how we don't understand fully who he is. But this next passage captures something completely different. This next passage is the portrait of grace. We see this, verses 22 through 26. And they came to Bethsaida. So they're on the, the lake, they go across, and they come to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man, 
and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home saying, do not even enter the village. So actually, I remember in this very room after a sermon last year, there's a girl who came up. Uh, we, were pre- we preached through Ephesians last year, so it wasn't even in Mark. And this girl came up to me, and she, she asked me about this text. She said, hey, I was, I was reading the other day in Mark. And there's this passage where this, this blind guy gets brought to Jesus, and Jesus spits on his eyes, because that's what we do, like as a handshake. Um, and he spits on his eyes, and he touches his eyes, but the guy's not, it doesn't work. It's like Jesus says, hey, can, can you see? And he's like, I can see kind of, I, I see figures, they look like trees moving around, because that's how people walk in the Middle East, is like this, right, Sean? Yeah. Um, and so, so he's like, there, I see people like trees. And then Jesus has to go and he has to touch him again in order for them to see clearly. And she's like, why? Why is it that Jesus had to touch this man twice in order for him to, to be cleansed? In fact, this is the only occurrence in all four Gospels in the entire New Testament where we see Jesus do something and have the first time be incomplete or ineffective. Right? We've seen Jesus touch men who have been lame from birth, and it says they got up and leapt. Okay? My son it was two years old. Over Christmas, he had a rotavirus, which I don't know what that means, but it means both ends all day long. Um, and so he couldn't, he, he couldn't walk for like three days. And watching him walk after not walking for three days was hilarious because his legs became so like atrophied, he like just fell over all the time. That was three days. Here are people who are lame their entire lives. Jesus touches them and muscles that hadn't been there their entire life were strong enough to support the man jumping up and leaping. We saw Jesus bring a dead girl back to life And here's some guy who can't see comes up and it's like tap Jesus' powers. It took him two tries. Why is it? Why is this happening? It's because Jesus knew exactly what he was doing here. You see, in the passage before this, in the event that immediately preceded him landing in Bethsaida and this blind man coming up, he knew the disciples had trouble seeing who he was. In fact, look back at what he asked them in verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? You see, Jesus sees the confusion and the lack of awareness in his disciples. And he sees that they have trouble seeing. He says, do you not see? Is it still unclear to you? You see, Jesus did this miracle for the sake of clarity. It's not that Jesus, like he was a little, he fed 4,000 people. He rebuked the Pharisees. It was a long boat ride. His disciples were being crazy. He's tired. It takes him two tries. Jesus intentionally did this miracle in a twofold way because the Christian life is not always a life of immediate change. Sometimes change is slow. Sometimes clarity is lacking. Sometimes vision is unclear. But new vision and change always comes from the hands of Christ. And that's what Jesus just modeled in this. Jesus brought the blind man's eyes increasing clarity, and Jesus will bring the disciples clarity too. Jesus will not leave the disciples in in their dumbness, so to speak. He will not leave them blind. He will not leave them deaf. Jesus will bring them clarity in his own time. 
There is hope for the disciples. There is hope for the Pharisees. There are hope for people who have indistinct or unclear views of Jesus because Jesus is gracious to those who can't see. Because Jesus will come and over time transform us to see with great beauty. And immediately, again, the story is progressing like a movie and we see uh, what was just modeled with the blind man. We see it start, starting to happen in the lives of the, of the disciples. We see this, um, this next scene, this portrait of increasing clarity. Verse 27. And Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. I love this passage because it gets at something so important here, especially when we're in college and especially when uh, you can find somebody in college who says they don't care what other people think, but we all do. We all care about pe what people think. We all value others' opinions. Even people, there's, there's like a circle group of people who want to be outside of a circle group. You're always with people. You always care about what people think. It's just who you care about and what they think. And I love this passage because Jesus is talking with the disciples and he says, hey, what do other people say about me? All, I mean, you guys, you, guys are, you guys live in this area. You know what's going on. You're out handing out food among the crowds. Who do they say I am? They say, well, some say John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist was this prophet we saw at the beginning of the book who foretold Jesus coming. Um, but he also said, hey, Herod, you shouldn't marry your brother's wife while your brother's alive. And then you shouldn't kill your brother and take that woman as your wife. And Herod didn't like that. And so he killed John the Baptist. And so people say, well, maybe this is kind of like a Gandalf the Gray to Gandalf the White type thing where John the Baptist died and now he came back and he's Jesus and he's better and stronger than ever. Maybe this is John the Baptist. And they say, others say Elijah or one of the prophets from the Old Testament. Elijah was a guy who we don't have his death recorded in Scripture. He's just taken up. And maybe this is Elijah come back down to bring good news. And you see, and often it's easy for us to shape our view of Jesus based on the group think that surrounds us. This is true on both sides. Whether you think Jesus is a lunatic, whether you think Christians are crazy, or whether you think Jesus is a God, groupthink isn't enough, and it's not sufficient when it comes to Jesus. You see, your view on Jesus isn't validated by the number of people who share the same view. Your view of Jesus is validated by the truthfulness of it. Do you see Jesus as who Jesus really is? And that's why Jesus asked two questions. Who do these people say I am? That's not important. Who do you, my followers, who do you say that I am? And this is a question we all need to answer. But in one extent, it's a question each and every one of you have already answered. You've already made up your mind about Jesus. At this moment in time, you have made a decision about who Jesus is in your life. And you either discard him or you worship him. And here we see, in a brief moment of clarity, Peter, a guy who constantly is putting his foot in his mouth, Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the saving one. 
you're the Savior. And you see, Peter on the road had a different view than Peter on the boat. Peter on the boat had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Peter on the boat was worried about what he was going to eat. But Peter on the road, because Jesus is giving him clarity, is able to say, you're the Savior. You're the one we've been waiting for. Yet what's funny, Peter never disappoints. Look at what happens next. Jesus, so, so he's the Christ. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. While Peter's view had been clarified... He got, he got it right. He confessed. Jesus, you're the Christ. You're the Savior. You're the anointed one. You're coming to save us all. He still didn't see it clearly. He, said, he thought, he understood Jesus was coming to be a Savior, but he didn't really understand what Jesus was going to save him from. You see, he saw Jesus as this guy who was going to come back and, and kick butt against Rome and, and get rid of this Roman rule so the Jewish nation would rise again. And Peter's like, hey, Jesus, that doesn't work if you're getting killed. I mean... Peter's probably looking around and thinking of the disciples. He's like, that's why he pulls him aside. He's like, hey, Jesus, you know, this is going to kill morale back home. The idea that, that you, who are supposed to overthrow a government, are going to get killed. You should stop talking about this foolishness. Yet Jesus rebukes Peter. And for the sake of the disciples, you see, Peter thought he was protecting the disciples by minimizing Jesus' suffering. Jesus protects the disciples by preaching his suffering. You see, from this moment onward, Jesus has set his eyes on the cross and nothing will deter him. For the first part of the book of Mark, Jesus is kind of roaming around and Mark kind of captures this ping-ponging across the Sea of Galilee, just going from village to village to village. But from this point in the book of Mark, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die on a cross. And what Jesus is saying is to Peter is that you cannot separate me from the cross. You cannot separate Christ and the cross. And see, the story of this text is important. The story of this text is important. It's only after we have seen the whole of the story of Mark 8 that we can put it together and see the theme of this text. And like I said, there are two observations we make from this. The first is that Jesus is merciful to the slow. And I want you to remember here, the 12 disciples, they're not just 12 dudes, okay? They are just 12 guys. They're smelly, stinky, ordinary fishermen. But, but Jesus handpicked these guys and said, follow me, I'm going to make you a fisherman. Follow me, you're going to carry out my mission. Follow me, I'm going to equip you. These are guys who Jesus picked to do things with him and for him, to be an intimate relationship with him. And the story is riddled with their slowness. It's riddled with their hardness of heart. It's riddled with their thick skin and, and stubborn foreheads. And, and, and it's just, it's mind-boggling, really, to look at what's happening here, isn't it? Like, after feeding the 10,000 with five loaves, the disciples are terrified that Jesus won't be able to provide for the 4,000. Right? We didn't look at the feeding of the 4,000, but we're in that. And Jesus, immediately after feeding 5,000, he's like, all right, guys, bring me your food. And they're like, we still, where do we get food? They didn't get it. And then he feeds the 4,000, and then they're in a boat. Got, where's the food? 
And they didn't get it. And then Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ. I got the right answer. But then immediately after that, Peter rebukes Jesus. Okay? Don't rebuke Jesus. If you take something away from the sermon, don't do it. And yet Peter rebukes Jesus. And it's just like trial after trial after trial after trial. Jesus is looking at these guys and he's like, give me something. You're failing over and over. You're looking stupid over and over and over again. But the same way the blind man received his sight, slowly and over time, Jesus is merciful to those who are slow. You see, when the disciples didn't trust Jesus would provide for the crowds, he brought them with him in his boat. When the disciples didn't think that Jesus would provide for them personally, he didn't forsake them. When Peter rebuked Jesus openly, he didn't abandon them. Jesus was merciful to their slow hearts. You see, it'd be easy for us to look at this story, much like I told you that story I find extremely humorous. And I find it funny because I'm like, those guys are idiots. But that's my heart, isn't it? I I fall into one of those camps. I'm either a Pharisee just outrightly not wanting to to believe in Jesus and doubting that and saying, I'm not going to believe anything you give to me. Or I'm someone who claims to follow Jesus, but in my heart and in my actions, I constantly prove I don't really know him. My heart wouldn't have responded any better. I'm weak-willed. I wrestle with my growth. I see the promises of God and I choose to live in sin. I see the goodness of the gospel and I tuck it in the corner of my heart or in the back of my life. You see, what I need is not more knowledge about the truthfulness of the gospel. What I need is more grace. And Jesus gives me that grace abundantly. You see, I know the truth. And Jesus constantly needing to remind me of it, graciously and tenderly. You see, we just returned from a really long break here. And many of you went home to old friends, old patterns, maybe old habits. Some of you over break, maybe you got plugged back into a great church and into your Christian family and you grew more towards Christ over break. But some of you, maybe you grew away from him. And if that's not you, God has not forsaken you. Jesus has not abandoned you. His grace is not exhausted for you because Jesus is merciful to those who wrestle, long-suffering with those who wrestle with sin. Your setbacks and your slowness should lead you to repentance, not to abandonment. Pray that Jesus would continue to be gracious with you. Pray that Jesus would, as he did to the blind man, touch you again and restore your vision and bring you clarity so that once again you could see the truth. You see, in the same way no one could restore that blind man's vision outside of Jesus, no one will bring you clarity on the gospel other than Jesus. No one will bring you life outside of Jesus. No one will bring you satisfaction outside of Jesus. No one will bring you purpose outside of Jesus. And Jesus desires to be merciful to you. Jesus desires to be gracious for you. And the second observation is really the hope of the first. How is Jesus merciful to the lost? What does that look like? If I say Jesus is merciful to you, does that just mean that he's going to make all the problems in your life disappear? 
Are you going to no longer wrestle with sin? Are you going to no longer wrestle with doubt? Are you going to no longer have friends who try to drag you down or, or, or things that come into your head that make you want to do things that are contrary to the gospel? How is Jesus gracious to you? By correcting your vision. You see, this is the second point. Jesus is a sign to the lost. He's a sign to the lost. You see, Jesus told the Pharisees that they would receive no additional sign. This is true. If you are someone looking for a sign from Jesus to validate his claim as God, you're not going to get one. If you're looking for Jesus to do something magical here on earth, so that you could say, if, if you would just do this and work some magic, I would believe in you, you're not going to get one. And that's because what you're missing and what the Pharisees missed as they stood before Jesus is that they were looking at the sign. Jesus is the sign. Jesus is the proof of himself. Jesus won't give you a sign. He is the sign. In Matthew, who records the same story, when the disciples ask Jesus for a sign, look at how Jesus responds to them. Matthew 16, verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. So Jesus says the same thing. There's not going to be a sign except for the sign of Jonah. Well, what is the sign of Jonah? For those of you, again, let's put up back our like, Sunday school glasses. Jonah was this reluctant prophet, and God's like, hey, Jonah, go and preach salvation to Nineveh. And he's like, I hate Nineveh. I don't want to go there. So he got on a boat and went away, and eventually he gets eaten by this big fish. He spends three days in the belly of a fish, and then God is gracious to him, and he spits him back up, and he goes to Nineveh. He preaches to Nineveh, this adulterous, wicked city, and what does it do? It repents. From the least to the greatest, people turn and start worshiping God. Three days, resurrection, salvation. What is Jesus saying? The sign I give to you, Pharisees, the sign that you are looking at but you can't see, it's me. It's the cross. There's no clearer picture of Jesus than the portrait of Jesus portrayed on the cross. You see, you can wrestle with a lot of things. You can wrestle with facts. You can wrestle with apologetics and defending your faith. You could wrestle with, there, there are people who do source criticism and look at the, the, the original documents of the Bible to see if it's true. But eventually, you have to wrestle with the cross. That's the sign. That's what you have to be won over by. That's the stumbling block. That's the entrance. That's the key. And Jesus' life is the picture, the sign, the blazing emblem that he is God. And this picture is an offensive one. The picture of the cross isn't one of roses and warm, fuzzy feelings. You see, it's so offensive that Peter went up and rebuked Jesus. He says, stop talking about that suffering. Stop talking about that death. Peter rebukes Jesus, and you see, Peter understood that Jesus was a savior, but like many of us, Peter didn't understand what he was being saved from. Why did Jesus have to suffer? Why did he have to? If Jesus was just coming to be someone who enables us to have good morals, why would he have to suffer? If Jesus was just coming to be a good model of how to live, why did he have to die? If Jesus was coming just to make us generous, why did he have to go to the cross? But if Jesus was coming to bear the sin and to bear our punishment and to bear our death, he had to die. Jesus had to suffer because Jesus is the Christ. Because Jesus is the Messiah. 
You see, there's a rare medical um, issue called congenital insensitivity to pain with anhydrosis. Anyone know what that is? Okay, cool. It's, it's called CIPA. CIPA. And when I first read about this disease, I'm like, that's not a disease. That's awesome. Because what it does is it messes with the, the neurological development of someone. And as they grow up, the, something happens neurologically where they're unable to feel pain. And I read that and I was like, that's legit. <laughs> to never feel pain? That's fantastic. And, and the, it says one in every 350,000 people are born with this disease. Right? And I'm like, well, that means there should be like, if, we, if 7 billion is a population of Earth, that's like 20,000 people who should be like this super army out there roaming around. But there's only 450 documented living cases of this disease. And you know why? It's because the majority of people who have this disease don't live past the age of three. And if they do, most of them die at the age of 25. And that's because, because they don't feel pain, the majority of them die at a young age because they, don't, they overheat. Where my son Owen, when he gets too hot in his bed because he sleeps with like a fortress of stuffed animals over him, in the morning he'll come and his blankets will be kicked off because his body gets hot and it tells him, this, this is hot, you need to do something about this. And so he throws things off. And if he doesn't throw things off, his body's like, okay, it's hot, I need to sweat to cool off. And so it sweats. You see, pain has saved Owen. Pain has saved Owen from dying in his crib like so many of these kids with this disease has. You see, pain is our friend. It alerts us to something that needs to change. It alerts us to something we need to move ourselves from. It, it tells us to get out of harm's way. It tells us to get help. How is Jesus assigned to the lost? Because he reveals to us the pain of our sin. You see, people often harp on Christianity and be like, all it does is talk about the sin. You're right. We talk about sin because you're dying from it. We talk about sin because Jesus came as a sign to show you that you're hurting and that you don't need someone to put you back on your feet. You don't need someone to tell you you're going to be great. You don't need someone to give you a moralistic butt slap. You need someone to come and save you from death. And Jesus mercifully has done that. The most gracious thing Jesus can do to you, as painful as it may seem, is to show you your sin and your need for a savior. That's the sign. His death and his resurrection, that's what Jesus came to do. The cross is your proof of who Jesus is. The cross is what tells you that this wasn't just a man, this was a savior, because the cross shows a God who came to die for his sinful creation. You see, if you want proof of God's faithfulness, don't look at how soft or easy your life is. If you want proof of God's faithfulness, don't look at and see all of the, the tangible blessings that God has given you. If you want proof of God's faithfulness, look at the cross. Because that's a Jesus who is merciful, steadfast, and gracious. That's a Jesus who deserves our worship and our affection. That's a Jesus who severs us from our sin. That's the love of Christ. That's the faithfulness of God. That's our salvation. Pray that Jesus is gracious in touching your eyes to give you a clear view of who he is. Pray that Jesus continues in his mercy each day to make that picture more clear and more real and more vibrant in your life so that you can look on Jesus and there's not a shadow of a doubt. That's my Savior. That's my life. That's my identity because that's what you need is gospel clarity 
And praise God, Jesus is merciful in bringing us that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, you say um, your mercies are new every morning and how we need that. Lord, our hearts are not above this text. Our hearts are buried in this text. We are the disciples who are stubborn, who have our own idea of what Jesus should look like. But what we fail to realize is we need Jesus to look like what Jesus is. We need Jesus to go to a cross. We need Jesus to bear our sin. We need Jesus to rise again, to bring us to new life and free us from death. Lord, we're the Pharisees who doubt because we don't want Jesus to be true. But what we need is for Jesus to break our doubt. What we need is Jesus to shatter our sin. And Lord, be merciful and touch our eyes daily to give us sight. We love you, Lord. We worship you. Pray this in your name. Amen.